Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law in the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. The Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. Today, we're joined by Dr. Claire Pearson, a lecturer in gender and comparative politics at the University of Liverpool and the co-founder of Reproductive Health Law and Policy Advisory Group. We'll be discussing Ireland's groundbreaking Eighth Amendment referendum to legalize abortion, the context leading up to the decision, and lessons for the international community. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us. So to get started, can you just tell me a little bit about what restrictions were placed on Irish women as a result of the Eighth Amendment? Yeah, so the Eighth Amendment was voted in in 1983 by the majority of Irish people. Two out of three people voted for it. And it basically put into the Constitution an equation between the life of a woman and the life of a fetus at any gestation of pregnancy. And so that means it affects all pregnancies, both wanted and unwanted. It means that doctors can veto treatment that women want during pregnancy because they can say they're protecting the life of a fetus. It also obviously affects unwanted pregnancies because women cannot access abortion. There is basically virtually zero access to abortion in Ireland. Um, That doesn't mean that Irish women don't have abortions. It means that the majority of those women are travelling to England and further afield. At the moment, there's approximately 5,000 women travelling to England per year. We also know that women are attempting to access the abortion pill online illegally through organisations such as Women Help Women or Women on Web. Those are reputable sources for the abortion pill. Um, They've been seized at customs. It also means that women maybe don't access pre or aftercare for abortions because of that illegality. So it's a huge problem. So how did the Eighth Amendment referendum come about in the first place? Was there some sort of popular push for it? Was it more of a top-down activity? Yeah, so there was really a few things that came together around the same time. We know that international human rights bodies have been putting pressure on the Irish government for a while, and that because of the constitutional aspect of the law, you need the people's will. So the Irish government convened a citizens' assembly, which is basically um, 99 randomly chosen members of the Irish population who came together over a series of weekends and heard expert evidence about abortion. That was from international human rights bodies, international researchers, healthcare practitioners, academics, and also some lived experience, so some women's stories. And it's a really excellent example of how when people hear actual evidence about abortion, factual evidence, not mythology, not religious arguments, not moral arguments, they actually tend to vote in favour of liberalising abortion law. So at the end of that process, they said they wanted to see a referendum on the Eighth Amendment, and the legislation they voted for was abortion on request up until 12 weeks, so for any reason, and after 12 weeks, it would be more limited to cases of fatal, fatal anomaly and sexual crime. So that preempted the Eighth Amendment referendum. And also I think that came in conjunction with that was starting to break down the stigma around abortion in Irish society. The majority of Irish people will know a woman who's had an abortion, but they may not know that. Because women don't talk about this, it's very silenced. But as we got closer to the referendum, more and more women have come out, and particularly some women who are in the media already, and said, I've had an abortion. This is my experience. I am your sister, your mother, your daughter, your friend, your neighbour, your colleague, and I've done this. And you know, there's no difference in me to any other women. So it started to break down that stigma in society. 
Yeah, I can see how that'd be really powerful. You spoke a little bit about international pressure. Do you think that the 2016 Universal Periodic Review of Ireland, where 15 out of 16 countries made recommendations on Ireland's abortion laws, had any influence on the 2018 referendum? I think the international pressure, really from about 2013 onwards, Ireland and Northern Ireland have been getting pressure to change abortion law. The problem is, in the Irish context, it does come down to a referendum. So the Irish government can't just implement law to change abortion. It has to be done by referendum. And that is people's will. So I think the pressure is really important for the government, but I think it needed to be accompanied by some mechanism to check what the Irish population's views were on this before. So I think we were getting to a stage culturally where people were starting to talk about abortion and it was becoming more normalised. And that was the right time to have a referendum. But I don't think um, normal people don't necessarily know about UN treaty bodies and universal periodic review mechanisms. They're more likely to listen to an individual story. So after the 2018 referendum, did that have any impact on Northern Ireland? So Northern Ireland still operates under the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. The 1967 British Abortion Act was never adopted in Northern Ireland. And that means that abortion is virtually unaccessible. There's some 1930s case law that says if a woman would become a mental or physical wreck as a result of a pregnancy, she can access abortion. But obviously that language has very little traction with healthcare practitioners. How do you decide if someone is going to be a physical or mental wreck? It's difficult to clarify. Also, policy with regard to abortion in Northern Ireland created by political parties has been quite restrictive and put a chill factor on healthcare providers. For example, in one piece of policy from 2013, it said if anyone within a healthcare facility thought an abortion had taken place illegally, they had to report it to the police. So this meant healthcare practitioners didn't want to do abortions, even if they potentially could have been illegal. So most women, again, same as with women in the Republic of Ireland, around a thousand more than Irish women per year travel to England. We know others access the abortion pill online, but we don't know how many that is. But we do know uh, women have been prosecuted in Northern Ireland for accessing the abortion pill. One 21-year-old woman was prosecuted and got a three-month suspended sentence. Oh, and with regard to the 67 Act, it seems that I have a colleague at University of Bath, Jennifer Thompson, who's done a lot of archival research on the 67 Act, and she's found that really it was just forgotten about. In a meeting uh, when they were drafting the law, someone made an off cough comment. Well, obviously this won't apply to Northern Ireland. That was then drafted into the law and it it simply appears that they forgot about it. And that is quite symptomatic of Britain's ignorance about Northern Irish society and politics in general. There's an idea that we're slightly, we're part of the UK legally, but we're quite different um, because of the history of violent conflict. People don't really want to get into the issues of Northern Ireland politics and law and so again anytime there's been a move to extend the 1967 Act to Northern Ireland politicians from Northern Ireland religious leaders have said this might damage the peace process. I'm not entirely sure how giving a woman an abortion damages the peace process but no government in Westminster wants to be the government who starts violent conflict in Northern Ireland again. So it's a really successful argument they've used over. That's really interesting. I would have assumed that when it wasn't implemented in Northern Ireland to begin with in 67, that that would have been a big debate at the time. So it's fascinating to hear that it was just swept under the rug. It was never brought up in Parliament. This was only in just private meetings where they were drafting the law. So what's been the impact of the Eighth Amendment referendum on Northern Ireland's abortion debate? Has this undermined the argument at all that the island of Ireland doesn't want liberal abortion laws? 
when the referendum took place, the day after the hashtag started on Twitter, the North is Next, referring to Northern Ireland, women in Northern Ireland supported women in the Republic of Ireland in the referendum, and we hope that those women now support us in changing our law. Um, the idea that the people of Ireland don't want abortion legislation is a complete myth. We know in Northern Ireland from repeated opinion polls that people do want to see women being able to access abortion cases at least of fatal anomaly and sexual crime. They also really don't support the criminalisation of women for access in abortion. The difficult area really is where simply a woman doesn't want to be pregnant. We don't see so much public support for that. But I think that is really symptomatic of the mythology we have around abortion in Ireland as a whole, the island as a whole, based on religious perspectives that are taught in schools, for example. We have this idea that women accessing abortion are reckless, irresponsible young women, potentially not using contraception or having a one-night stand. Whereas the actual evidence shows us the majority of women accessing abortion are in their 30s. They're already married. They already have children. They simply don't want them any more children. But that mythology is really powerful. So you've talked a little bit about how important it is understanding the discourse about abortion and the ways that people seeking abortions are viewed and are talked about. But how have human rights arguments on abortion been translated into the local level in Ireland and Northern Ireland? And what sorts of arguments have been persuasive or not? In Northern Ireland, human rights are a very complex issue. Human rights were written into the peace agreement and have been a big part of policing reform, legal reform, uh, investigations into state-based crime, and the crimes of paramilitary organisations. But there has been a discourse in Northern Ireland that rights are associated with one community, and that's the nationalist community, i.e. those who support the reunification of the island of Ireland, and that human rights don't apply equally to everyone. And this is, again, it's a false argument, and it does mean that it's harder to use a human rights-based argument in Northern Ireland if you want to unify everyone. The other issue I would say is that sometimes the arguments around bodily autonomy don't necessarily have resonance with people because they don't show us the full experience. People tend to respond much better to actually knowing about a real life lived experience, um, that someone they know has had an abortion and this is their experience. The idea of bodily autonomy necessarily doesn't always translate to a normal person on the street. Um, the problem sometimes also has been with human rights arguments is that they're used in the more extreme cases. So if you think about the cases of women who've had fatal, fatal anomaly and have had to travel to England and it's been a very hard circumstance on potentially a young person who's been a victim of sexual crime. You know, there are cases where the police have travelled with a young person um, so they can collect fatal remains to test in rape cases. You know, these are really emotive, hard cases and they invoke... Uh, issues like inhumane and degrading treatment. The problem is they're not the majority of women's abortion experience. Most women simply are accessing abortion because they cannot be pregnant anymore, uh, because they have you know, enough children already, or they don't have money to have more children. And so it's harder sometimes, I think, to invoke human rights arguments in those what would be the everyday experience, the normal experience of abortion. And I think we have some way to go in making human rights-based arguments really resonant with just a normal person on the street. So it makes a lot of sense that individual stories or hearing about people that you know and their lived experiences is really persuasive in terms of the court of public opinion. 
But in your opinion, what would the role of a human rights-based argument be in increasing abortion access? What role does human rights and the human rights framework have to play in these debates? I think human rights gives us a minimum international baseline for what women should be able to access. I think it means that internationally we can learn from each other and it gives us that framework to start making arguments. I do think there is work there in making it resonant to people. Human rights necessarily haven't been completely effective in Ireland or Northern Ireland. Recently, uh, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission took a case uh, arguing that Northern Ireland's abortion laws were incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. That case, for example, went to the Northern Ireland High Court, was successful. The Northern Ireland Court of Appeal, it was unsuccessful. And then at the UK Supreme Court level, it was decided that the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission didn't have standing to bring the case. But if they had have had standing, it would have been successful. But what a, that case has taken, the first judgment was 2015, we're now in 2018. So it's a long, long, long process. Um, and I think that makes people frustrated with law, actually. Um, there are women who have been part of this case, not bringing the case themselves, but who have given evidence time and time and time again to the media, to, to the court, and they're not seeing the change. And sometimes that does make people feel that are human rights actually effective or are they just a rhetorical tool? And I think that's what we're beginning to see. People are starting to feel that our human rights actually getting us where we need to go. And that's, I think, the problem, that sometimes these processes take such a long time. I think one of the other problems with human rights is understanding of rights. They are complex, they are a legal tool, and it's very easy to co-opt them. So what we have in Northern Ireland is politicians arguing that abortion in cases of fatal, fatal anomalies would convene the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So it's very easy for it to become a very complicated argument where people aren't really sure which rights they have, which rights are convened. We talk about bodily autonomy, but we also talk about being free from inhumane and degrading treatment. And sometimes that complexity makes it very easy to construct the right of the unborn child. Where does this come into the argument? And then we start to pit women against children. And sometimes that's what makes rights quite complicated to argue. And so you've obviously spent a lot of time studying this issue from an academic perspective. Can you talk a little bit about what the relationship is between activism and academia, where they intersect, and how your academic research and publications and of your peers have informed the dialogue around abortion in Ireland? Yeah, I think when you research a topic like reproductive rights or abortion, uh, the line between activism and academia is definitely blurred because we do this research to provide evidence for social change, for legal change. And I think that's really the key thing that we do is we can provide an evidence base, a factual evidence base in a debate that is so highly mythologised. You know, we have these articles that go online, links between abortion and breast cancer, and the idea that women who have abortions will end up abusing their children. These are all things that we see, and we see these globally. And really the idea that academia can provide factual evidence based, something like I said earlier, um, the idea that the majority of women accessing abortion are young women. They're not, they're women in their late 20s, early 30s. They're women who already have children. Sometimes the idea that abortion is women who don't want to be mothers. Many women do, they just don't want to be mothers to 
hundreds of children. They want to have, you know, a family size. They want to be able to control the amount of children they have. And I think that's really one of the key things that academia can bring. I think we also can provide a platform for breaking down stigma around abortion by providing a platform for women to tell stories and to talk about their experiences. And I think that's what we then can do is provide activists with the tools to do the work that they do really well. So watching the Irish referendum from afar, watching it from New York, especially in our current political climate, we were very excited and impressed to see some sort of progress internationally on access to reproductive rights and health. What lessons do you have for the U.S. and other countries that are still struggling to gain and protect access to legal abortions? What worked that helped change opinion and passed the referendum with such staggering numbers? Yeah, and that's the interesting point. The referendum passed in 1983 at 2 to 1 supporting, and it passed in... 2018 with two to three supporting. So it's like a complete sea change in opinion. And I think that really comes down to, firstly, really importantly, one in three women will have an abortion globally in their lifetime. It's not abnormal. It's not unusual. Um, And I think it's this normalization and showing it as a part of healthcare is really, really important. That this is a normal healthcare procedure that's part of the wider idea of reproduction. And I think that's one thing, particularly in the Irish context, we were able to connect. Ireland has a really problematic history with maternal health and maternity in general. Things like mother and baby homes or single women who became pregnant outside of marriage were put. Issues with maternal health care in general. Connecting the dots between those issues and that abortion is a part of a reproductive life cycle, a normal part, is really, really important. I think as well allowing people to actually tell those stories in a safe environment. So I know there was one project called In Her Shoes, Facebook, Twitter, women were able to put their stories online completely anonymously. So they didn't have to uh, actually get up in front of their communities. Ireland's a small country. If you tell your story in the newspaper or on TV or on the radio, your friends, family, colleagues are going to know. So having a space where people can tell their stories but anonymously is also really important. And I know those stories did influence people and how they thought. And when they read about those stories, they realised this is, you know, this is a very normal thing, but we're making it traumatic through how the law and how we're treating women. And I think that's really important. I think we have human rights, but we also have stigma. And stigma is incredibly important because no matter how much we use legal and human rights arguments, if people, for whatever reason, feel anti-abortion or listen to anti-abortion arguments, it's very, very hard to actually affect change. And it's very, very easy for political parties and politicians to say that they are anti-abortion because there's a huge anti-abortion lobby. Um, They have a lot of power, they have a lot of money. People who are fighting for reproductive rights tend not to. So do you have any final thoughts to wrap up our conversation today? Yeah, I think for me, being here in the US, um, it really shows that women's rights and reproductive rights in general are a constant battle. Um, We don't win rights and then have them forever and we can forget about them. This is something that uh, we get progression in Ireland and then we see women be getting regression in the US. So it's back and forwards, back and forwards. And I think, again, that's why human rights are really important because we can use that as a global tool to learn from each other. But I think it's a constant conversation that we need to have. 
even in the Irish context, if the law changes, we then need to ensure that women have access to abortion. Because we know many countries, the law is liberal, but women don't have access. Um, we need to constantly break down stigma, think about how healthcare providers, for example, think about abortion. So it's just a constant cycle of we get progression somewhere, we get progression somewhere else. And I think that's why human rights in particular gives us that global framework that we can use to argue and to translate with each other. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or rate us on iTunes. To learn more about the work of the Global Justice Center, visit our website at www.globaljusticecenter.net.